who gave a shit about Michael Keaton before that? I think he was in this first. You know what I'm I'm saying? Okay, you're right. But even before this, like who the relevancy and like staying relevant. No one cared about me before I put on the mask. Oh my god. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Alon. And this is David. And today I finally watched Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. So um I watched this in theaters like a uh a good cinephile and um of course i think everything um that anyone heard about this movie especially the fact that it was or at least it was meant to look like it was shot in one long take um was the big drive for every pretentious film student to run to the movie theaters and go and watch it um and and watching it now since I'm like outside of kind of the movie business um, and remembering what I felt like before when I was in school for film, I was like, I remember seeing some scenes, especially with Ed Norton. I was like, oh, that's really cool or that's really clever. And now I'm just thinking like the entire time I'm watching this, I'm like, what a pretentious movie, especially Ed Norton's character. But the whole movie has this like kind of this pretentiousness about it. But does that stop it from being a good movie? No, I still really enjoyed it. So what did you, uh, what was your overall thought? I'm glad you're healing a little bit and can realize when things are pretentious. Um, it's a process. We're all working every day. Uh, I liked it. Um, it's a movie that I think grows on you as you go through. Um, it's also a movie that relies um, a lot on the way it's made as like the driving force of going to see it a little bit more than maybe the actual story. Um, you know, 1917 is obviously a comparison because it's the one shot, but there are plenty of movies, none that I'm going to be able to think of right now, but that rely a little bit more on like, I don't want to say some sort of like gimmick because it's not gimmicky. It's actually a really beautifully done film but just something about it that like differentiates it a little bit um the the beginning of this movie was not rough but i was just like man i don't i do not like seeing these people like none of them <laughs> and then as it goes through you do get a little bit of that pretentiousness as far as uh everyone in this movie thinks they're or at least most of the characters think they're above like everyone else. Like, right. Like he's, he's too good for social media. Uh, Ed Norton's character is too good for anyone. Tabitha is just a bitch and thinks that she's the, uh, the bastion and guardian of, of theater. Um, and so going through it, I'm like, Oh man, I just don't, I don't enjoy watching these people, but as it continues to go, it gets better and better. Um, and I did really like it. And also I felt like, I felt like some of the, uh, some of the way it was shot was like, it's not, it's not very look at me. It's just like a different way of doing the movie. Like you can tell it's obviously there's some sort of cut there, but it's not, it's not in a way that's like showy. And that's what I really enjoyed about it. So 
you, I'm glad you mentioned 1917 because I feel like when this came out and everyone was like, oh, this is one shot, this is one shot, there was a lot of different things being said versus when 1917 came out and everyone was like, oh, it's one shot, one shot. Um, different people say different things. And I don't think that sometimes like uh, some movies are given a fair shot of different ones um, than others. So for example, I think for 1917, everyone was like, but what's the purpose? Because if you're going to do this, you need a purpose behind why you're going to shoot it in that particular way, right? Just to give it some sort of meaning. 1917, I can easily see the purpose being like, okay, you're in war, nothing stops. Like everything is going, you don't have a second to breathe. And being shot in all in one shot, or seemingly so, gives you the feel as the audience of that um, drive, of that, of that hurriness. Um, there's a better word for that. I can't think of it right now. Um, so let me ask you this. I have my own answer. But what did you think was the purpose of Birdman being shot in this particular way, aside from it just being cool? Because it's a, it's a play, right? You know, plays don't stop. And from the point of where the opening scene where he, like, talks to his daughter on the phone to the ending scene where he uh, spoiler alert shoots himself in the face. That's all sort of the play. And, you know, there's a cut before that. And then there's some, a cut after that, but that that's kind of why it made sense to me to do it that way is, is partly because it's, it's about a play and it's kind of mimicking the style of it. Uh, what's your more pretentious answer? Um, oh man. I am going to sound pretentious. Well, look, I mean, to, to a point, I agree with you that that is the reason. But I mean, quite honestly, I think there's a lot more going on here because what I really like about it and what you have to kind of like think about is that in 1917, it's all following this one character. This is a lot different, right? This is following a multitudes of characters. Kind of, you know who the Michael Keaton is obviously the main character but the camera doesn't always follow him it'll go down another hallway and start following Emma Stone or go down another or wait in a hallway for like a full 45 seconds before Ed Norton walks in or something cool like that right um it does give you play vibes but even even theatrical plays have intermissions this didn't have anything until the very very end and that's I feel like that was for a whole nother reason um but I thought it was just kind of giving you the, the, I guess, the day in the life of this person. Because it does happen over a course of, what, 24, maybe 36 hours? Uh, I but, thought it was like four, maybe four or five days. Because it's like three previews and then the opening night. Um, but where's, actually, the, where's the cuts if, it, if there's no cuts? How does four or five days go through in two hours? pretty easily i mean there's a bunch of times like uh when he falls asleep on the bench and then it goes to daytime and it's like it's pointed up at the buildings and the only thing that changes is the sky sort of rapidly right but that's the only that's the only day change i can think of no there's other times where it's like you're inside and it's like pointing down a hallway 
and um it changes from day to night like or night to day like it goes to the next before the next performance or during the next performance all right granted i didn't really pay attention that much to that aspect of it but okay all right fine four or five days but i thought i thought it was cool nonetheless no no it, it it is and i um you're talking about uh you know, all the pretentious people running to see this and that you saw this in theaters. This and Boyhood are the only two like best picture nominations from that year that I missed. Um, and so now Boyhood, which is like a four hour like experience that I'm gonna have to do to, to knock them all out. Um, I, uh, I never saw Boyhood. Yeah, me neither. Uh, as I no, just said. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> So the other ones just nominated, I think we can do this at the top, but American Sniper, Grand Budapest Hotel, Imitation Game, Selma, Theory of Everything, and Whiplash. Wow, I missed a lot. Yeah, yeah, feeling less less full of yourself now. (laughs) Um, Okay, fair. I deserve that one. Um, I think the only ones that I saw in theaters during that time was Birdman and whiplash i didn't see the grand budapest hotel until afterwards um i've never seen american sniper uh and i've never seen um interstellar interstellar was nominated not in this year it was no it was nominated it was nominated that year just not for best picture oh okay well i was talking about best picture uh the Imitation Game, Selma, Theory of Everything. Wait, I did see The Imitation Game. Oh, and I saw Big Hero 6. It, was, it won for the best animated. Yeah, I thought How to Train Your Dragon 2 should have won, but that's, you know, whatever. Can't win them all. Um, yeah, and I, I actually think this was a very strong year for Best Picture nominees. Like, I, I actually really liked all the ones I've seen and I know boyhood is, is going to be great once I actually sit down to watch it. It's just, a, it's a big ask. It's a long one. Um, do you want to get into the movie? Yeah, let's get into the movie. Um, let's do it all in one take. Actually, we always do it all in one take. Let's do it all in one breath. Um, okay. from the beginning. Um, no, but seriously, it opens up with like a quote. And I, I like how the movie opens up with audio first rather than visual. I thought that was kind of a cool way to introduce. Uh, with like the jazz horns? With the jazz horns, but also you have his voiceover. You, you hear him, uh, Michael okay. Keaton, first before you actually uh, see him floating there. In his tidy whities mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that quote was... I forget what the guy's name is. Is it Carver, the guy that the play is based on? That's the quote that's on his gravestone. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the opening is probably the beginning is like my least favorite part of this movie, as I've kind of made clear that I think it gets better as it goes along. Um, I do think what is established in the beginning is just like, and it's for most movies, it would be the thing that you're watching the movie for it would be like this is the only this is what this movie is about which is is this guy crazy or does this guy have superpowers and that is just like a complete like b or c story in this movie right it's like it 
the ending which deals with that is almost seems like kind of like not out of place but just like oh yeah i guess that is a thing in here too but it is like it is just like not even close to the most important thing like in the plot of this movie or in this movie so i have a <clears throat> i have my own thoughts about that however we can say since since that really doesn't take a precedence on the rest of the story we can save our our thoughts on his superpowers towards the end if you don't mind um, no 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 um do you think that he actually puts pig semen in his face the character not not the actor oh no not the character now do i believe michael keaton <laughs> puts pig semen in his injects on his face yeah maybe uh, this is the worst. He actually looks pretty like he looks pretty good in most of his roles. Like he doesn't look as old as he does here. So maybe, maybe that's why he looks so good. Another. Um, what did you think of uh, Galifianakis in this? It's so funny because Taylor walks in was uh, as we're watching this, and it's uh, one of the scenes where Galifianakis is telling um, Michael Keaton like. It's something about Ed, Ed Norton's character and, and, you know, whatever. And Taylor's like, why does that actor look so much like Zach Galifianakis? And I was like, because, well, because it is Zach Galifianakis. And she goes, well, he doesn't, what's different? He doesn't even sound like him. I'm like, yeah, babe, he's actually acting in this one. <laughs> I think he acts in the other one. I think he's being more normal in this one, maybe. Is he? Um, I actually really liked him here. I thought um, his more toned down, because Zach Galifianakis is just kind of this funny guy always, right? So you can just put him in this like kind of very toned down sort of role. And some of the things he comes off or his mannerisms just naturally come off as funny. Yeah, no, and I think even, even in this, there's certain like line readings that you're kind of laughing and like that he's, he's kind of making a little bigger than someone else might. Um, right. I especially like before we leave uh, Galifianakis. I especially like the scene where he tells, like, to pep him up. He's like, "Yeah, Martin Scorsese is here." Yeah. Uh, Scorsese. Yeah, he calls him Scorsese. He's like, "Martin Scorsese is here." And then as he walks in, uh, as he walks out, Naomi Watts is by the door, and uh, Naomi's like, "Is Martin Scorsese actually here?" And like <laughs> Zach Galifianakis is like, "Yeah, and the new Pope." <laughs> Do you know what's really funny about that? I don't know if you read up on this. Scorsese is actually in that scene when uh, Keaton walks in his underwear through the back. If you look, you can find him in there. Uh, through like one of the extras in Times Square? No, no, no. In the, in the audience for the play. Oh, shit. Really? Yeah, I didn't see it. I just read it. So I could be making it up, but I read it somewhere. Um, it's kind of cool. I do like, too, the opening scene with Galifianakis where he's talking about how he's going to make the lawsuit go away. And he talks about the nun in diapers yep. that the guy's interested in that he can... Which, by the way, he he totally can't make that lawsuit go away. That lawsuit is still happening, like, throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, what, what did you think about that? Because at that point, um, he was... You know, we see him floating there. I'm talking about Michael Keaton, of course. Uh, we see him floating there in the beginning, and then I believe he maybe moves a little something in the beginning, but he keeps, during that entire monologue that he has with that actor, he keeps looking up. Did you notice that? He keeps eyeing the ceiling until eventually the light comes down. 
I did not notice that, which is why I probably should have watched it a second time. I didn't this time. And um, that would be, that would make sense. But I, I went into this and we're getting a little, a little close to what you want to say to the end, but I went into this just thinking he's a crazy person and that this is in his mind. And so I think a rewatch would probably make sense to figure out, all right, are there things here that, you know, cause they, they do a good job going back and forth of like, these things are in his mind. Um, these things are real, but I just took that as like, he's just a crazy person who's like, Oh, I made that happen. And Zach Alphanex like, Oh, okay, cool. Um, and I love their conversation afterwards where he's like, well, we got to replace him. And Zach Alphanex is like, well, we pay this understudy guy. Uh, we could, we could use him. And he's just talking about like how shitty that guy is. And I think how shitty like Ralph is the, the diaper nun guy. Um, but I really do like, they did the same joke twice, but the, uh, what is the replacement just going to knock on the door? And then Naomi Watts knocks on the door and be like, I can get Ed Norton in here. <laughs> like, oh, fuck yes. Um, yeah. Um, I think another big appreciation of this movie is how many times they mention other actual actors and like actual movies that are relevant in 2014 slash 2015. Right. Um, like, I think, I believe they mentioned Ryan Gosling as a replacement for Ed Norton. Um, they mentioned Robert Downey Jr. They mentioned um, a bunch, a bunch of actors that I, I feel like doing that is kind of as a catch 22 because it really puts you in like, okay, we are in our world like the world you and I live in, David, for this film. But this movie is not going to age well because those actors, people, I don't think people are going to get the impact of those actors in like maybe 20, 30 years. You see what I'm saying? I mean, maybe, but like, I don't know. It's, there's, what do you, if you just use fake names, it's like, uh, there's no impact there either. So it's kind of the same thing, right? But 20, 30 years from now, if you're, watching this as like an older person you're like oh, i remember that and that still connects i um, love i love one of my favorite parts of the movie is when you know he has this birdman persona talking to him in his like voice overhead um the entire film and i love how he's like uh you know, the guy can do the, uh, the 10 man routine, but you, you have more talent than he does. And as talking about Robert Downey Jr. And, and Iron Man and just kind of like tearing apart, even mentioning Jeremy Renner as a replacement. It's like, no, no, no. He's doing the whole like Avengers thing. He's in the Avengers. It's so funny now, especially knowing Michael Keaton after this is that he's now part of that Marvel cinematic universe. Well, he's, and he's both right. He's back to DC too. Right. Well, I mean, I was going to mention this a little later, but when they mentioned like Birdman 4 yeah. and all, all the reporters get excited for him and then he, he like talks to himself and he's like, you know, a bunch of um, neck beards creaming their pants because you're going to come back for Birdman 4. And I'm thinking like, well, shit. It's like he's coming back for Batman. Like he he's basically living the life of what Birdman is pretending to be like, over like like better than well i mean the it the characters for keaton and ed norton are both 
like accentuated over the top versions of what people think they are. Right. Cause I mean, yeah. Birdman at one point is like, Oh, you know, the last Birdman came out in 92 and that's when the Batman came out that Keaton was in. And um, when Ed Norton comes in and starts changing up the lines, I was reading some story where um, the director was uh, Ed Norton started like messing with some of the lines in, in the movie and he's like, oh, wow, you're just like, you're exactly your character. <laughs> and it's like he has, Ed Norton has this persona or this thought about him that he's like difficult to work with, like a perfectionist who's trying to like always like, you know, his way is better of doing things. So it's like, you know, they are playing these accentuated versions of themselves in this. And I think that definitely adds to it um, when you have these two guys doing it, almost to where it feels like the parts were written for them. And I didn't like find anything on that, but. Yeah, it did feel like that. I mean, especially kind of drawing the similarities between Batman and Birdman. I mean, right there, it's like, who else are you going to cast but Michael Keaton? Um, and, all right, we're not there yet, but when we get there, I'll talk about it. The uh, When he's locked out of the theater scene. Um, moving Moving on, I think next we are introduced to well, you mentioned he talks to his daughter on the phone and we don't actually introduce like see his daughter played by Emma Stone in person until Ed Norton is already hired on the team. Um, and she takes him to wardrobe. Talk to me about this scene, David. What did you, uh, I thought it was great. I, I enjoyed it a lot. What did you think of this? I mean, Ed Norton's in really good shape. So that's, that's thing one. Um, also real quick too. Uh, Right before that, when he's talking to Ed, when uh, Michael Keaton's talking to Ed Norton, he's like, "You know my lines too." And Ed Norton's like, "Can we just can we move past this part?" <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean Ed Norton for being ho- however old he is, pushing fifty, I guess, right? Must be. Probably. Um, it's been around for a while. Great bod, tiny penis. I didn't see it. I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't look that closely. Uh, no, no, no. It, you don't see it. But uh, apparently... <laughs> talking about the bulge. Now, you see, the thing is, I think his was rising up, so it doesn't go out as far. But I think it it arcs in a no, 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 no. Apparently, uh, when he's in wardrobe, that scene, uh, Naomi Watts says he has a tiny penis. Oh, I don't remember that part. And this is also kind of when we get a really good introduction to Naomi Watts because one, she starts talking shit about uh, Sam, who is played by Emma Watson. And um, she's also just talking about how she doesn't want Mike to fuck this up because this is like, you know, Mike's been in broad. Mike Ed Norton has been in Broadway, but this is like her big break. Um, and yeah, that scene's that scene's cool the whole time. Like it accentuates that Ed Norton is a dick, pun intended, because he he could have stopped Naomi Watts from talking shit about Emma Watson, but he just did it in the he did it enough to where he could say I tried. Mm-hmm. but not enough to actually stop it from happening. Yeah. Um, and then, as you say, I kind of like scenes like this because it does give you an inside of who Naomi Watts' character is. But as she's explaining who Emma Watson's character is, so you kind of get a two-for-one exposition dump, but it's done in a way that you don't really feel like you're getting an expedi- expedition, exposition excuse me, dump because it ignites this like i don't know this uh conflict between emma watson and naomi watts's characters 
It does, but then there's. Did I say Emma Watson? I meant Emma Stone. I might have said Emma Watson earlier. Um, It does, but then there's no payoff for that, right? Like, no, absolutely not. I Um, mean, she she sort of, you know, Naomi Watts dumps uh, Mike after, and we'll talk about that, and then Emma Stone gets with Mike, but there's no like, those two don't interact again in the entire in the entire movie. Yeah, I mean, do you think that would have been better if it wasn't Naomi Watts, if it was uh, the other girl, the other woman, the dark, the brown-haired? Laura. Laura. Um, because then it would be like, oh, she could potentially be Emma Stone's new stepmom. <laughs> yeah, but also probably not. Um, I don't know. I, I, because of like the... I don't know, love triangle nature. I, don't, I honestly, I just don't think it matters, right? I think it's just more of a full picture of this whole theater experience, but like all the side stuff doesn't necessarily matter. You, you say love triangle and then I would bring up, which one are you talking about? Because then there's so many, I feel like surprise love triangles. So I don't know about you. I mean, of course me watching it for this, for this time, but watching it for the first time, I didn't see... Emma, Emma Stone and Ed Norton hooking up. Um, and I certainly didn't see Naomi Watts and Laura hooking up. I'm glad I did see it, though. Um, you did see that coming? No, I said I'm glad I saw it. <laughs> I, <thought> it <laughs> I um, Well, I think I was reading something, too, and I didn't pay attention, but I think, like, most of the characters kiss. Like, Laura kisses Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton kisses his ex-wife. Uh, played by Amy Ryan. Um, Naomi Watts kisses Ed Norton. Ed Norton kisses Emma Stone. And then, uh, as we said, Laura Laura and Naomi Watts kiss. And Laura is also played by Andrea Riseborough. I don't know. I probably didn't the, say that name. The right. way you're saying, like, Michael Keaton kisses Naomi Watts, Naomi Watts kisses Ed Norton, Ed Norton kisses Emma Stone. <laughs> sounds like you're... you're reading a real pg like substituting kisses for fucking you're like so it was all kisses so these two characters kiss (laughs) um yeah no i i didn't uh i didn't expect it i don't really even know what the point of it was but i thought i mean once again there is probably some meaning behind it that i'm missing but i also just thought it was like it was a nice full picture of like this this kind of experience that I appreciated. Well, it's a um, small, it's a really small theater troupe, right? I mean, it consists of what, four or five people? Four or five like main characters and then a bunch of weird dream sequence people, I think, right? Are you talking about the ending? Yeah. No, well, no, the no. Last, no. The last scene. Of, no, 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 no. I, no. I know, I know the I'm talking drum, about, I'm I talking, know the drum line is not in the actual thing, Alan. No, no, no. Hold on. <laughs> I don't know. At this point, I don't know if you know that. Um, no, I'm talking about like not the the actual cast of the movie, but the cast of the of the play. I know what the fuck you're talking about, but there is a dream sequence where there's like people walking around. You mean Spider Man? Okay. Anyway, moving on. So I don't know. I'm serious. I, apart from the ending, there's another dream sequence that. What, what do you mean? The, the, in the play, there's a dream sequence. I, I know what you're talking about. I just, I don't know. I can't remember. So 
they flip the play around, there's a dream sequence, and then they flip it back, and then it's the hotel scene. Wow. Okay. So then I guess apart remember from- when remember when he tells Zach when Zach Galifianakis is like maybe we could afford Mike if you didn't need a fog machine and he's like I needed it for the dream sequence. Oh, the dream sequence! I thought that was like, I thought that was actually his dream because Laura is there talking about how she doesn't really want the baby, and I thought he was imagining himself in that scenario. Well, then I mean that is the dream that like that was his dream, and he made it a reality and put it on stage. Oh, I thought that was actually happening in his mind. I didn't think that was an actual, like, scene. Well, they only show it once. They only show it the first time that they kind of run through the play. Um, if you were to actually take this play at face value from what we see in the film, it's a very short play. It has five people and two scenes and maybe a dream sequence. That's it. Well, now that I think about it, Laura might be the person in the dream sequence that's running around because she has nothing else to do at that time. And when they do come out and do their bows, I think it's only the four of them. Um, so I don't know. Normally in theater, everyone gets to go bow. Real quick, though, so Lauren tells him she's pregnant and then slaps him because he doesn't handle it well. And then there is some sort of a cut that we can't see, and we're now at the next day, just to let you know. <laughs> okay. Okay. And this is the, you know, you've, you've already seen the first preview. This next preview is the one where uh, – Mike Ed Norton is drinking. Yes. And uh fucking uh who is it? Michael Keaton takes away. Well, I don't know, I just started cursing. And Michael <laughs> Keaton starts taking away the alcohol and going through his whole speech. And I literally thought this was a dream because it was so fucking crazy that Ed Norton just like, Did you take away my alcohol? and starts like breaking shit because he wanted to get drunk during it. Uh he's a method actor. David, I don't know if you know what that is, but. Um, <laughs> and this is the scene where they say the title of the movie, which is always great. Is, is this a scene? I thought the end was the, the newspaper article was the get day. I mean, they mentioned Birdman quite a few times, but I, I take it you're talking about the virtue of, of ignorance. No, I'm talking about when Ed Norton says everything on the set is fake except for this chicken. And then he takes a bite out of it and said, that's some good bird, man. I honestly can't tell if that actually happened in the movie or that was just a very long setup to a very lame joke. Why can't it be both? Because it is both. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that, that happened. That was a thing. Um, the, uh, you've... I, I think that made me dumber. Um, I didn't think that was possible. Um, Watch the movie again. You'll see it. It's okay, there. Man. All right. I get you. I get you. So, um, oh, man, you messed me up. Okay. What did you think? Did, so when, when Michael Keaton was standing up on stage and giving his whole little monologue towards the audience, and you could see, like, the curiosity of um, – Ed Norton's character coming to light when he does realize that he replaces his actual gin with water. Did you think that was part of the scene? I thought it was. I thought he was supposed to be making some sort of like quiet-esque ruckus in the background as this was happening in the foreground. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But then it was like brought on to the front of the stage. Uh, when I first noticed it, I was like, okay, 
is this a dream? Um, like, I didn't think it was part of the play. I thought it was a dream. You think everything was a dream? Because well, it was so fucking crazy, right? What's even crazier is, is after it's over, Ed Norton asked, like, act like nothing happened. He's like, it's a preview. No one gives a shit about this. Like, I can get drunk during a preview. It also makes you realize why he got fired from the previous play, too, probably, because he's an alcoholic. But then, you know, he goes to the bar with, uh, with Michael Keaton. Is just like, oh, that's fine. Whatever. We'll be good. Like, everything will be fine. It's like, all right. Like, and that's yeah. when... That's when you're just like, at, for me, I couldn't take anything in the movie really at face value. And it makes you wonder like, you know, what about this is real? What's happening? Like you realize afterwards that that's real, but it's also just so crazy and so unexpected that it really takes you out of it. I think especially with his character specifically, I'm talking about Ed Norton here. Um, because one of my favorite lines from him is, uh, he just gets done basically destroying half the set and uh, you know, everyone's furious at him. Michael Keaton is, is, is extra furious. He just pops his head around the corner. He's like, wow, spicy audience tonight, huh? And then just walks away. And it's like, <laughs> it's so funny. Um, My favorite Ed Norton line was that's some good bird, man. You're so annoying tonight. I don't know what's happening. Um, now i believe the next thing we are in would be i believe zach galifianakis told um riggins riggins reagan reagan yeah reagan like the president or reagan like uh sounds like a disease r-i-g-g-a-n i I don't know if that sounds like a disease it's reagan you got the riggins man (laughs) Um, tells, I'm just gonna, I guess I'm just gonna call Michael Keaton. Um, tells Michael Keaton he has reporters coming by, and I think the next scene is the reporters. That happened so long ago. That was the um, pig semen scene, yeah, but we didn't really get into it. I just kind of like the, I guess the only thing we can talk about that is, is how these kind of interviews go of like, um, uh, lost actors i guess actors that were kind of thrown to the curbside long ago um i like the misunderstanding of the of the asian reporter thinking he said you know a a birdman 4 is happening when he's like uh when they wanted me to do birdman 4 i said no and he's like oh birdman 4 like everyone got really excited and and it's like yeah it's batman man right because it's just like it's just like if Michael Keaton, I mean, it did happen, right? If Michael Keaton's like, I'm coming back for Batman 16, and everyone's like, yeah. It's like, yeah, but like, it's crazy. It's crazy how just kind of true this movie is because before, I guess, Michael Keaton took on the role of Vulture in Spider Man who gave a shit about Michael Keaton before that? I think he was in this first. You know what I'm, I'm saying? Okay. You're right. But even before this, like who the relevancy and like staying relevant. No one cared about me before I put on the mask. Oh my God. All I'm saying is that the whole movie is about being relevant and not losing your relevancy. And I think, 
you you almost couldn't pick a better scenario than Michael Keaton and Batman. No, I agree. And I mean, the, it's also the difference between like why you want to be relevant, right? Because you got 300,000 views for walking around in his underwear in Times Square. And it's like, but that's not what he wanted, right? He, he made, he made fun of Twitter. He made fun of, he doesn't have a Facebook, all that, but like, you know, that was, it's funny, like how much more important those things are now, but it's, it's like, that's how you became, you become famous now. And, uh, but he didn't want to, that's not what he wanted. He wanted, he wanted notoriety from his peers and from people he respected not just fucking asshats on the street who want a picture with birdman right well i mean it's really funny because he was just he was just um making fun of of emma stone's friends who's he's like um all they want to do is go viral and actually her monologue after that explaining to him like that's all you really want too is just people go about a different way of doing it but you can't respect the way people do it nowadays that entire monologue is one of my favorite parts of this movie. That she outperforms herself against any other role. It's like I absolutely love her in this in this movie. Um, She's so fucking mean, so mean, so wonderful. Um, but it and then how does he gain relevancy by get, becoming viral? It's 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 great irony right there. Yeah, I agree. Um, I do want to go back just a quick bit because his ex-wife showed up and that was the only, the interesting thing about that one, I, I like her scenes like towards the end, but when he talks about needing to like refinance the Malibu house and she's like, well, that's supposed to be, you know, Emma Stone, Sam's, it, you can tell then like he's still, he's still kind of all about him, right? Like there was no growth at this point and there is some growth for him it's weird. Like as he becomes crazier and crazier throughout the movie, he's also becoming like a better dad and a more like loving ex-husband, but you know, almost husband. Um, but in this scene, he's just like, it's all about him still. And he wants to, uh, he wants to do everything he needs to like make this play work. Cause at this point, that's all he cares about. Um, and the other thing real quick is we were talking about when Ed Norton and Michael Keaton go to the bar I love the line when he's like, popularity is the slutty cousin of prestige. And Michael Keaton's like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it reminded me of something I would say. And then you being like, that doesn't make sense. You're not, I don't think you're clever enough to come up with that line. Do you, did you actually, do you actually think that line is clever or do you it is, it's a bunch it is, of bullshit? Okay. Well then maybe you're dumb enough to come up with that line. When the, the point of what he's saying is it's, it, I think the line makes sense if you believe that, right? Like his, his, it's basically the, the Twitter versus like, you know, notoriety of his peers thing, right? Like popularity is getting likes on Twitter for, or getting likes on TikTok for doing a dance. Right. But prestige is, Oh, I'm an actor on Broadway and I'm going to get written up in the New York times, which is like a, a periodical of, you know, that has a reputation is like, that's what he's talking about. And it does make sense. It's just whether or not you believe that. Um, I guess that's true. But then, I mean, as anyone who would have believed it, I would have thought it would have been Michael Keaton's character would have believed that wholeheartedly. Yeah, he would have. He's just too stupid to understand it. Um, also really quick. I think the, the best like 
side character in this movie is Tabitha, the New York Times uh, writer. Her two scenes are my two favorite scenes. Uh, the first one, it's mostly the interaction she has. The first one with Ed Norton, yeah, um, where she's like, "Are you, you know?" He's just basically talking shit about her. He's like, "You know what they say about critics? They're the ones who can't act." And she's like, "Aren't you worried? I'll give you a bad review." And he's like, "I would be, but only if I could give a bad performance." And she's like, "It's so fucking like <laughs> full of yourself." But oh, I love Tabitha. Her. She's the one that looks like she ate hobo's ass. She does look like she'd eat a hobo's ass. It's like, what does that even mean? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But what I does that it. say about that poor actress? Um, and then the second one is is pretty good too. I just didn't quite understand what her unprovoked hate towards uh, Riggins was. She describes it later in my in another favorite scene of mine, so we can get to it. But um, you know, she just she she's on the the Ed Norton train of like this is the theater and it's important and you're just an actor who makes a Birdman movie and you don't deserve to be here. Basically it's, she's a gatekeeper the same way Mike's kind of thinks there should be a gatekeeper. Now. All right. So those two scenes jump ahead of each other quite a bit. Going back to the Ed Norton scene with her when they're in the bar, right? They're in the bar. Um, and that's when they mention that she looks like a person who eats a hobo's ass. Um, um, one of my favorite moments of the movie is how irrelevant Edward Norton is telling Michael Keaton that he is. Um, and as soon as he finishes with his little, uh, monologue, a couple, a couple of people come up to him asking, like, not, not giving a fuck who Ed Norton is just like, here, can you take a picture of us and Michael Keaton? And I love how the little kid is like, who who's that it's like he was birdman honey i could have just totally imagined like a gen zer saying actual michael keen being like who the fuck are you is the parents are like he played batman in 1992 yeah that was the the second time they used that joke you know the one where like how are we going to get how are we going to replace this actor in this case ed norton like no one gives a shit about you and then like he's completely wrong two seconds later um except the difference is is that i think whoever at that point would notice and recognize Michael Keaton would have also recognized Ed Norton. I don't think that makes it different. It's no, no, same, I'm saying the joke setup is the same. No, no, I'm, I'm saying the joke setup is the same, but I'm saying if this actually happened, where it's like people recognize Michael Keaton as, as Michael Keaton, if the actual Edward Norton was sitting next to them, I think they'd also recognize Ed Norton too. And not just ask him to take a picture of them and Michael Keaton. Yeah, I think people would recognize Michael Keaton first, honestly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I, I don't know. In this movie, it looks pretty damn old. I think if people saw Ed Norton, they'd be like, oh, dude, you were in that Jeremy Renner Bourne movie. That movie was fucking great. Oh, you were in that one Hulk movie. That movie was fucking awful. <laughs> I think Hulk movies are hard to make. Hulk movies um, are very hard to make. I agree with you on that. So the next sequence, uh, sorry, the next scene is the dream sequence. I think this might even be the third day. I'm not sure. But this is where Ed Norton has a boner that he hasn't been able to get apparently for months and tries to have actual sex on stage. Because once again, this is previews and they don't matter. Um, um, he kind of just a raper. 
a little bit. It's yeah, kind a of a bit. it's kind of a heavy scene in it, in all honesty. And I don't know how I feel about the other. I guess it's real to life, like the other people kind of just being like, "Oh, that's just him," or like <laughs> like Laura says, she's like, "Um, oh my God, what is Naomi Watts' character's name?" Uh, Leslie. Leslie. When Leslie confides in Laura and he's like, he tried to have sex with me on this on on stage in front of eight hundred people. And Laura's like, that's kind of hot. Yeah, I mean, I think the way the movie is able to it's probably not get away with it because it's probably a, a problem people have with the movie at the time, but I didn't see it. But I think the way the movie is able to justify getting away with it is just that it didn't really get that far, right? He's like kissing her and she's telling him no. And it's sort of, they get interrupted very quickly. Um, but yeah, no, it's fucking very rapey. Um, but then he has a boner when Michael Keaton's character exposes them having an affair, like in the play, right? And, and you could hear the audience's like audible laughter about it. Do you think that added to the, to the experience or do you think that took away from the drama of the scene? I think if you see, it takes away from it. Cause if you see that you don't think it's a real boner. And so you're like, what the fuck is going on here? I, yeah. I mean, but here's the whole thing, right? It's kind of like um, method acting as a whole. Cause Ed Norton's character's whole thing is method acting. And in real life, if this was actually happening, he would actually have a boner, but it takes away from the scene. Like you said. So it's like, it's it's weird because that's in in one circumstance where it's almost too real to be in this without taking taking it away. But Ed Norton can't see that. I did not follow you at all. What you're trying to do there? But I was thinking like, is getting a boner on cue for a movie that's like the equivalent of like being able to cry on cue? <laughs> I feel, I feel like, I feel like one of that, one of them, one of those actions is way easier than the other. And I'm not going to tell you which one. I also feel like that's maybe an adult film thing that might be really good to be good at. Uh, Maybe not. Makes sense. We already covered our feelings on the ladies making out. um, And so we don't need to. It's good. Uh, And then the next scene is when. uh, Although I do, I do have to, I do have to say real quick when they are kissing and Ed Norton walks in, and he's like, uh, and he just walks out. I thought he that was... No, he didn't just walk out. It, he, he didn't seem to notice that it happened. I thought he noticed, and he was just too, like... He said something. He had a conversation. I think she threw something at him, and then he goes, okay, you're not ready. Um, it, to me, it, it kind of was like, you know, this guy's a narcissist, and he, like, doesn't even... It, that part that didn't even register to him. He just didn't even care because he's like, you know, I'll get her back. Um, right. But then the next scene, he it's him and Emma Stone. This is where he walks upstairs. And this is like one of the cooler cuts, I think, where he like walks up and it kind of gets dark. And I think that probably has to be a cut right there. Oh, so where it gets like so dark, it's almost like a whole black screen for a second. That's definitely right. a cut. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is when they play truth or dare. I, I love when she's like, why did you make that comment about my ass? And he's like, well, I saw your ass. It's a nice ass. I wanted to let you know that it's a nice ass. And then she asks him to fool around. And he's like, 
no and then she's like well why and he's like that's the second question she's like just tell him and he's like i i don't think i can get a boner (laughs) yeah um i do i do like the fake confidence that ed norton's character um puts off um but it's it's all a mirage to to how actual like um self what, what am i thinking self um self-conscious he is um right and i think you really get that in that scene i also like the dare where he dares her to spit on a bald man's head from like a skyscraper in new york yeah it didn't seem that high you know it was like what a few stories it was as high as the theater yeah um I do like then the next scene with him and Michael Keaton because Michael Keaton discovers like the newspaper where he stole his Raymond Carver story. Yep. And he's like, why don't you get your wor- your wings and your bird suit? And he just punches him in the face. Yeah, that was a really good uh, Hollywood punch, I thought. Um, all, I think all the punches were like they felt very real. Like the ones in the play felt very real. Actually, um when he comes in in his underwear with the finger gun, I think that was like a real punch because it cut to like the st- um, the stage director looking like, like, whoa, like what the fuck? And what's funny too is it's totally in character for Ed Norton to just be like, yeah, he punched me like whatever. This is like, that's fucking good. Like, let's make it real. But I also really like um, when he's uh, mad at Ed Norton for stealing the story, the uh, the fake story about his dad. And then he put, and the whole time it's happening, I was like, I know this is fake. And then he pulls his head up and he's like, see, I can fucking do it too. <laughs> um, and then the fight, uh, just the whole fight from beginning to end, that pan away of Ed Norton yelling at him, being like, you know, I think this is where he gets, he's like, who are you going to get to replace? You can't replace me. You're going to get Ryan Gosling to replace me. It's right after this, he starts trashing his dressing room. Um, Tele- telekinetically. Uh, maybe at first, and then he starts actually doing it, which is, you know, it's the line about like, I ignore this mental formation and the, his Birdman voice is like, you can't fucking ignore me. I'm not a mental formation, but yeah, he's like, he's telekinetically trashing it. And then he starts actually trashing it with his hands. What's interesting that's... is that he's only actually trashing it once Zalka, Zach Galifianakis walks into the room. Yeah. And that's why this movie a little bit, one of the complaints you could have is, like it's like a having its cake and eating it too moment. There's like, it does in this, we'll talk about more of the sin, but it does so much to like, let you believe that this is fake. But then that last scene is like, okay, all right. So what was happening here with that? Um, yeah. But then they, they, uh, Zach Alphanakis lies about all the important people are going to be there. And I do like it, it, like it gets him out of his funk and he kind of seems to be good. That's when Leslie, uh, Naomi Watts kind of gets this like reality check from like her whole career is on the line for this one. And she talks to him and she talks to um, Michael Keaton and he's like this like fake. I don't know. I don't know. She just, she just mm-hmm. found out that everything Zach Galifianakis said was a lie. Um, and then she goes in to talk to Michael Keaton to be like self, to reassure herself. He just reiterates whatever Zach Galifianakis says, and she knows that to be a lie. So he doesn't help. And this just like, 
she's really sad about it because she's like this is not this is if anything this is going to ruin me before i even get a career right yeah and she apologizes about you know mike and like that he's kind of ruining things at this point um yeah this is like the most in-depth we really get with her character um and i thought we would get more but there's so much focus on Keaton's character from here on out that it's like, we don't really get a lot of the rest of them at a certain point. Like, I guess after, after he blows his brains out, yeah, we don't really see, sorry, attempts to, we don't really see any of the other characters anymore. It's all him, which is pretty late in the movie, but um, we just mostly see them in the play from here on out kind of. Um, one thing I want to mention real quick though is that everyone in this film is amazing like acting wise like even Naomi Watts who's a huge actress doesn't have that big of a part in it but oh my god she delivers her line like she's the star of the show like she gives her 100% Emma Stone gives her 100% and Norton gives her 100%. And, and I don't know if it's just the way it is done. Did you, just ch- did you just change Ed Norton's pronouns? What did I say? Ed Norton gives her 100%. Oh. I, I can't assume anything. Um, Ed Norton gives their 100%. Okay. Huh? And then the only time that I've seen the acting in this movie stray a little bit is from michael keaton i'm not sure if that i mean i'm sure that's done on purpose because i know he's an he's an amazing actor but some of the stuff was just not coming off as believable and again i don't know if that was on purpose or i just wasn't buying his performance sometimes uh well i guess you can give me specific examples when we get to it but i actually one of the things that i struggled with is i was like for for acting in a play i thought he was really good for most of it like i was like he's he's doing a really great job in this i thought it was like a little bit i guess it's it makes sense because he it it, it ends up people love it but i just thought it was like people are talking shit about him as he's doing a pretty great job yeah, no, I mean, I just mean, you know, him when he's talking to certain people in the in the flick. I'm not even talking about him when he's on stage. I'm just saying, like, there's some, here's what I'm saying. There's some times in the film where it's coming off as ingenuine, his line reading. And I can't tell if that is Michael Keaton being a bad actor or his character honestly not being genuine on what he's saying as his character yeah i don't know without any examples i don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't know it happened like here and there throughout the movie um i did like one and this is jumping all the way to the beginning and i thought it was bad acting but i was like no that's just kind of funny and well done is zach galifianakis says something to michael keaton michael keaton, michael keaton smiles and zach is like don't smile you're creeping me out and I'm like Michael Keaton does have a creepy ass smile. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's known for it. Um, real quick, let's get back to it because I do like the next scene with Emma Stone and Ed Norton, where he's like, 
she's like, who did that to you? And she figures out it's her dad. And she starts to get mad. I'm like, why the fuck are you getting mad? But then it turns out because she's got the hots for Ed Norton. But I love that he's like, nah, I think I deserved it. Because at least there is some like recognition in him. He's not like a complete idiot that he can't see what he's done. Right. Um, And then when he asks her, what's the worst thing that he did to you? And she's like, he was never around. He's like, that's it? (laughs) And then she's like, well, he tried to make up for it by convincing me I was special. And, and Ed Norton's like, well, you are special. And they start making out. But it, I do like that he's just like, all right, get the fuck over it. Like, grow yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and then they have sex on the top of the theater. That's right. They do. As I think, her, they, just, I think as... they just kissed. <laughs> they kissed. On top well, of no. The so they didn't have sex on top of the like they didn't have sex during the performance. This is again once another cut to a different day, because they start having sex and then it rolls over and goes down to like that scene in the play at the table, yeah. and the audience is full. That's like the next day's preview. God, that's confusing. I didn't get that at all. I just thought I was like, why shouldn't Ed Norton be in the scene right now? Why is he it, up there having sex? He was in the scene. I guess he was. Um, it's also, uh, I do like the next part that I wanted to talk about was when he apologizes to Laura. It's like right before about to go out for the dream sequence. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and she tells him that she's not actually pregnant. And, um, I like her line of like, you know, when I imagined Broadway, I didn't see reindeer. She's like, that's a nice touch. And then she sort of walks off. And this leads to a scene you and I, I think both liked, where he sees uh, his daughter and Ed Norton making out and decides to go smoke a cigarette. Yeah. Um, This is probably like, this is halfway in the movie. Did you know that? Uh, Yeah. This is like the midpoint. And what's so funny is that he was just talking about how not getting locked out, right? But so he gets locked up. Long story short, he gets locked out. But not only does he get locked out, but his robe, his one piece of clothing that he's wearing, apart from his tidy whities gets stuck in the door that can only be opened from the inside. Which leads to him having to rush all around from the back of the theater to the front of the theater to get into the theater for his scene but in doing so he has to basically go through the entirety of Times square yeah which is really great um there's a drum line there's some there's a spider-man character i believe which we'll all we'll see all these people again yeah no that's a really it's a really cool scene and shot um not a lot happens in it besides him just walking around in his underwear. Very determined to get back in. Well, this this uh, sparks someone videoing him and getting 350,000 likes on YouTube. Right. Um, or 350,000 views. Um, which then goes into the relevancy of him becoming popular or off of uh, being viral or popular off of prestige. And it was the first one. So. Right. Um, I like the scene after this too, where, you know, him and Emma Stone throughout have kind of just been at each other's throats, not, you know, not really good to each other. And right after this is kind of the first time where this is like some growth for him and some growth for her too, really. 
and he talks about how he was a shitty father and she was like no no you're fine maybe ed norton helped with that a little bit um and then she's got like the uh the toilet paper where she's like done all the dots that represent how long we've been around yeah she takes off the one piece and he starts wiping his face with it and she's like you just wiped out the entire human race right um yeah, that was that was a sweet moment, and then it leads to the second scene with Tabitha and him. I, it to me, it felt like first of all, she's just being like she's just being a bitch to him, and the fact that she's just going to shit on the play no matter what, obviously not fair, and it makes Michael Keaton sort of snap. I love his comeback to her and just what he says about her and just like goes in and he like grabs her notepad and he's like these are just labels these are just labels this is just lazy fucking writing she's not it you don't even know what you're talking about and you're just a critic you can't actually fucking do anything anyway um and then she's just like well i'm gonna do it anyway and just walks off but i love i love him going in on her and just letting her know exactly how he feels um i think this was this is close to the uh we're getting kind of to the end here um but one thing I got to talk about is, you know, we spend most of our time in the movie in the theater, backstage in his dressing room, on the stage, up in the um, attic, or yeah, whatever you call it. Um, and there's a few times where we do step outside. One when Ed Norton is taking the smoke, and then the famous, you know, walk through Times Square in your underwear scene. But uh, and the bar, right? Um, but I really, really liked, how about that liquor store, the product, the, the production design? I don't, I don't even think it was production design. That's probably a real liquor store in New York or wherever that had all those chili pepper Christmas lights hung up on the, that's such a cool fucking scene. I do think that is production design because the director purposely put that in there. You know, he is of Mexican descent. So um, the actor I guess in this case, the character who's like screaming outside of the liquor store. Who is that? I was like, I know that that that's someone. I just can't pinpoint it. His name is Bill Camp. Okay. He is billed as Crazy Man in this. Yeah. And he is Detective Garrity in Joker. Oh, Aloha. I mean, he's been in a ton of shit. So yeah, so then I guess, you know, we found out Bill Camp is the crazy man. And I like how he's like, I just wanted to show you range. Is, is it too much? <laughs> and it's like, well, is it, now I'm thinking, is that in his mind? Or is that just a crazy guy on the New York streets? And uh, I think this is where we come into like him actually losing his sanity, like fully. Right. Uh, and then the next major cut, which... I don't know if you noticed, but it goes from night to day and a day has passed and he's falling asleep on like a park bench, not a park bench. He's not in a park, but on a bench. Um, And then this is where things get really crazy, right? He like the bird man starts talking to him immediately when he wakes up, we get the first like visual of this voice, like the Michael Keaton in a bird man costume floating behind Michael Keaton. Um, Very then, Yeah. Right. It's in the inception of crazy. Uh, and then he starts snapping his fingers and action starts happening. And they're talking about like how much money the fourth bird man would make if they did it. And then he floats up and people are staring at him. Float well, hold, up. On, hold on. Before we get into that, there's a very 
important piece of dialogue that's, that's exchanged between the two Keatons, which they, they kind of break the fourth wall. Did you notice that they broke the fourth wall talking about us as the audience being like, oh my God, they're going to eat this shit up, action and killing and murder and stuff like that. And it's just like, no, I was, I was actually just enjoying this like calm movie, <laughs> I guess, if you insist. I don't think that counts as breaking the fourth wall. You don't think mentioning how the audiences clamor for like action sequences and then giving us like cities blowing up was breaking the fourth wall? No. Basically talking to us. No, he was not talking to us. He was talking to himself. Talking about us. He's talking about audiences, not us. Well, look, David. This not movie, the people it, watching the movie. This movie can be interpreted in, in any way you want. Oh, you interpreted it wrong. Um, and then he's standing on the edge of the roof, right? And this whole scene, it's like, what's real, what's fake? And this woman's like, oh, is this real? Like, are you going to kill yourself or is this a movie? And he's like, oh, it's a movie. And she's like, oh, you fucking fakes. It's like she wanted him to kill himself. And then the um, other dude walks up and tries to stop him. So let me ask you here. He, do you think he actually floated all the way up to the building? Or do you think that's what we were supposed to think he did? And he actually ran up like, nine flights of stairs to the roof of this building and that's why the people are looking up and then when he's flying over the cab is he actually just in the cab because he because at this point he gets out of the cab gets into the theater and the cab driver is tracking him down because he didn't pay him so at this point his actions are affecting real world people which make me think that this is still like he's just crazy and him getting from point A to point B flying was was just all in his head. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the natural way you would interpret that. That's the way I would interpret it, right? Because there's a couple things that go against that. When he's on the roof and the guy brings him down, he turns around, runs, and jumps off the roof. But the guy's like, whoa, whoa, wait. It's like, why would the guy say that if he didn't actually jump? Yeah, I mean, that would have to all be fake in his head that guy would have to be not real. Like that would have not had to have happened. And then he was just standing on the side the whole time. And he like flagged down a cab and went, went to work. I guess. Um, I did appreciate the, when he's up on the roof and he goes, jumps off and flies, there's like the post, the man of steel poster in the background. Right. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but there was actually a Gordon Ramsay advertising for master chef in the background too. Um, I didn't notice any of it, but I read it was there. So I'll take your word for it. Okay. The next part is probably one, I like plot wise how they cut it, but two, when the cab pulls up, chases him in, cabbie comes back out, and the cabbie drives off as it's just staring at the front of the theater, and people are walking by, and it just goes from day to night. And then we're now at the intermission of the play, and everyone's walking out just talking about how great it is. Right. I, I really love that part because it's like we don't need to see this play that many times. So just cut to us being like, oh, that's awesome. Plus, the very end of the play is like the best part of the play. You don't need that speaking in the in the kitchen part. Right. No, of course not. Um, and then I like how, what's his name? Randy. The guy who gets hit in the Ralph. head. With, Ralph. I was close. Um, Ralph comes back up in like a wheelchair and is like with his lawyers. Like, we're suing you. It's like, no, you're not. Just a quick little, a quick little <laughs> reminder that that that's still happening. Oh, he's like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, whatever. 
Um, um, I want to ask you this. When he pulls out the gun for the final scene, do you yes. think it, did you think it was real the first time you saw it? I didn't think of anything of it. I, I don't know what I, why I see, I guess when you're watching something and you're not looking for anything, there's a lot of things that go unnoticed. Now, again, knowing what happens, I'm like, how the hell did I miss him pulling his gun out, taking the bullets out, cocking it back. And like, maybe I convinced myself at the time that they were just blanks, but like, why does he have to make sure that the blanks are like fully loaded? I, you know what I mean? First time I watched it, I didn't think much of it. Now watching it, how obvious it was that it was a real gun. How about you? Yeah, I thought it was real immediately. I thought it was real. Um, I also, uh, this happened right before he grabs the gun, but uh, Amy Ryan, his ex-wife visits again. I do like their conversation. Once again, this is more like growth from him. And they talk about like why they broke up, right? That he cheated on her. Right. And then he tried to kill himself. And the jellyfish, which by the way, there's that very quick shot of the jellyfish at the very beginning of the movie. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And I tried to rewind it and I still really couldn't tell what it was. You mean at the very end of the movie? No, they showed the jellyfish at the beginning. It's like a, it's like a split second, almost like a subliminal picture in the very oh, beginning of the movie. I missed it. I still couldn't tell what it was. And then it goes to the end and it's showing it. And I was like, I still don't know what that is. Are those seals? And then I read up and it was like, no, that's the jellyfish. I was like, oh, fuck. Okay. It's like that, that makes sense. That's funny. Um, I think there was actually one seal. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, this is a good time to talk about it. He's walking with the real gun and he walks past the drummer who's just in the break room. Right. And that I think is really cool because the whole time I was like, man, this, the soundtrack of this is super like invasive and it's driving me fucking crazy. And I think that has to be on purpose. Maybe not. Maybe it's just me. Um, but I was like, yeah, it's just like, it, they need to lower it. Like, it's just, it's in my head. It's in my ears. Like, I don't like this. And then to see him walk by and there's this drummer just banging loudly in the, like, in the break room. I was like, oh, so this is in his head. And I don't know if that was the point of it, but I was like, okay, I can at least appreciate that. Like, it's driving him crazy too. I think that was the whole point. I'm glad it was driving you crazy. Cause I think that was the whole point. Um, I think the soundtrack is amazing. I thought it was out to do a certain job and it did it. I thought it was really cool how it handled it. This was, this was the same year that Whiplash came out. So I was like totally for invasive drumming in movies at that point. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I absolutely fucking loved Whiplash. Um, so I was totally, I was totally in. Actually, this, I probably caught it the first time. This time I actually missed him walking past the drummer. That's my bad. Um, did you like how he, like right before shooting himself, he fake shot at Edward Norton. And even though it was like really good and probably purposeful, Edward Norton, it's like his actual character was taken aback by like, what the fuck are you doing? So I think Edward Norton knew it was a real gun. Because oh, he noticed. Because if you look, Edward Norton's in the background and of like when he first walks in and the way he's like has his hands up and everything, like, yeah, that's the way he should be acting in the scene anyway. But just to me, I thought he knew because he also says earlier on, he's like, hey, I could see the fucking red thing pointing at me. Like, get something better. 
and yeah. maybe he didn't maybe he just was like oh we got a better gun but i thought that was i thought that was did you think that was great foreshadowing no yeah yeah absolutely but i i thought edward norton knew i also like as he's walking out annie um who works on the stage was like trying to put the blood pack on him he's just like i just keeps walking like i don't fucking need that um i didn't notice that either right after he shoots himself everyone's like giving a standing ovation because they think it's just fake did you see the critic like running out yes i did i did see that because she's so pissed um i did see that um okay so now we're going to talk about something we're going to talk about the ending and i want to tell you something my thoughts of the ending and then what I read at the time were other people's thoughts of the ending that I adapted. You're you're talking about the Emma Stone part, right? No. Okay. Go for it. Okay. All right. There is not a single noticeable cut in the film until he shoots himself at the end of the movie. Right. Right. And there's several. Right, then there's a bunch. Then there's like no holding back. Everything is going to have cuts to it. Um, Up till that point, this is what I read in an article, and I really like this. This is what I've kind of adapted as my own belief of the film. You can think whatever you want. This is just what I really... Someone said it, and I really liked it. Everything that happens after he shoots himself on stage, he's dead. And... That's signified by the actual cut in the movie. So he's dead. Um, The marching band, the Spider-Man, the Iron Man, the jellyfish, the meteors coming down from space and crashing onto Earth. That's all like the last few thoughts that are rushing through his brain before he dies. And the whole hospital scene from him waking up and seeing his wife to... Emma Stone looking up into the sky out the window is kind of a, a, a fake dream sequence, if you will, huh, David? Uh, a fake ending to a rather dismal story, like a perfect ending that would happen in like heaven, right? Because think about everything that happens in that last scene. He wakes up, he has the prestige, he has the fame. He his you know, Zach Galifianakis is like, I'm going to get you record deal and book deals and all these sort of deals. You're set, right? His, record deal. Yeah, record <laughs> deals. You know, Michael Keaton and his amazing singing voice. Um, and then um, his wife almost looks like they're going to mend their entire relationship on this. Uh, things are going great with his relationship with his daughter. Um, and then at the end, Emma Stone looks out the window and I guess he can fucking fly, right? So it almost seems like too good to be true. And, and from what I read, it was the director's intention, I think, that you're supposed to think that this is almost like heaven for him. But it's not, right? He died when, when he shot himself on the stage. And I think uh, if you still don't believe that, I think a bigger giveaway of that is no way did he shoot himself in the nose and they completely repair his nose in, in like a span of like a couple of days, assuming that the newspaper article that Zach Galifianakis shows is like 
you know you know what i'm saying it's 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 not real anyways that's my thought that's what i think go go off no no i agree with you oh i actually i think that it takes a lot of my maybe issues with the way it ended it makes them make sense that it's not real um it also makes sense that tabitha was like i'm gonna fucking destroy you and (laughs) no i don't think no matter how good he was i mean i guess if he is that great then she can't like ruin her reputation by saying something's bad that everyone else is like, nah, it's fucking great. So maybe, um, but no, that it, the, when they show the nose, I was like, oh, that doesn't fucking make any sense. Like right. it was, it, it almost looked like he had been punched rather than he had shot it. And also like he, you know, he's aiming at the side of his head. How did he take off just his nose? Um, I also and- like how, yeah, go ahead. Well, and the the way the uh, the way the plaster—it's not even plaster; it's just bandages are on his face. I thought it was interesting too. Like he keeps telling this story about the old man that can't see his wife, and is like heartbroken because of it. You know, they're in the car accident mm-hmm. as part of the play, and then now he has—he's been hit, and he's got this face covering that's covering his eyes, so he can't see side to side either. And then his daughter brings in flowers and he's like, and he's all about flowers in this movie. And he's like, because of this, he's like, oh, I can't smell the flowers. Off of what you just said, on top of that, when they were doing the preview in the very, very first uh, scene, the beginning of this movie, um, right before the light fell on Randy's head, um, the, that monologue in the kitchen was saying something along the lines of how um, the guy tried shooting himself in the mouth, but he couldn't. He missed. Right? I don't remember. You remember that? Well, I thought it was a great foreshadowing for like what happened at the end too. And I then... I think I remember it, yeah. This is when Zach Galifianakis comes in and hands him the newspaper. And this is where we get the first mention and the last mention of the official title of the movie, The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Because that's it's, the... It's, it's the subtitle. It's the second title. Eh, I think it's the international title. But my point is, is that that is the uh, title of the newspaper article. It is. It's written it, also, it also makes it better that Zach Galifianakis didn't actually take a shot at Meg Ryan in her nose. Because that was uncalled for. Um... um and also, when he takes off the bandages, he's got basically like a Birdman mask on and bruises. And, and he's fully healed? Yeah, you, you mentioned that part. Okay. I was mentioning a different thing. Okay. I also, the whole time he's in the hospital, just having this thought, I was like, all right, what the fuck is he going to get charged with? And then Galifianakis is like, you're going to get charged with brandishing a weapon. I was like, oh, it seems like you should get charged with more than just brandishing a weapon. Um. I like the little last exchange between him and Birdman. He was like, hey, he was like, fuck off. Where, when was that? Uh, he's at the hospital. He's taking the bandage off in the hospital bathroom. Oh, right. And Birdman's right. taking a, a whiz next to him. <laughs> Birdman. This, this apparition of his mind has to pee. Yeah. I think it's, I, I thought it was great. I do like that. It actually kind of reminds me, and we've talked about this before, but um, the movie Enemy, Denis Villeneuve's, like, I think this came out actually similar timing to this, like 2013, 2014. 
And I watched that movie and I was like, I like it, but I'm just so confused on it. And it has, it's the whole, the entirety of that movie is a like figuring out what you believe is reality. And I read this one article on it and I was like, that's, that's what this movie is. Like that is, that is the explanation of this movie. I will accept no others. So that's kind of how I felt here too. Yeah. No, I agree. It, it makes the movie so much better that, that reality, that version of it. Um, and 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 if that is true, the very very end where Emma Stone looks up and smiles, as if her father is flying. That going with that makes sense too. Finally, so the, that's what I'm talking about. Earlier, when I said like, oh, he's having his cake and eating it too. It's like this whole time you're painting him as crazy with like the cab, and the the fact that when people are around he you know he's throwing stuff but before he's doing it with his mind um that all that's what i was meaning by that um you know the fact that he's calling like having planes and shit like blow up new york city as he's walking by like that's clearly fake so that it makes so much more sense the the way you described it and the the person who wrote that um, so here here's our understanding um he's crazy and he died at the end a little before the end. Now, real quick before the, we end this, um, of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture, this won. And I don't really have a problem with that. Do you have a choice of what you think should have won? Having seen not almost, maybe not even half of them, I guess. Um, I guess, you know, I already mentioned the ones that I've seen. Um, I, there's a, a special place in my heart for Whiplash, but I, I, I obviously, I don't think Whiplash should have won. I was actually very surprised, glad, but surprised it was even nominated. Um, but the, um, For me, should this have won? I think it definitely should have been a contender. Was it better than Grand Budapest Hotel or The Imitation Game? Or The Theory of Everything? I haven't seen it. Or or Boyhood? I don't know. I don't know, man. So of these, the only one I haven't seen is Boyhood. So talking about the rest of them. I mean, I really like The Imitation Game. And I like The Theory of Everything. Those are very much just Oscar movies, Mm -hmm. you know, as we know them. Um, I actually would have been really happy if Selma won. I thought Selma was kind of really amazing and really like affecting as a movie, especially that story. Um, and you see it. The Grand Budapest Hotel is probably my favorite Wes Anderson movie of the ones I've seen. I'm missing a few, but it's my favorite. Here's the thing. You could almost say that the Birdman won because of its stylization, but what's more stylized than a, a Wes Anderson movie? That's just his, that's, you know, but he does the same. I mean, that's just the way they all look, right? So, I mean, in that context of but like you can't, a Wes but Anderson see, when movie. When you're doing that, you can't compare Wes Anderson movies with other Wes Andersons. You have to compare Grand Budapest Hotel with all the other nominated films. And I would have chosen that over all of them. The Grand Budapest? Yeah. So you think the Grand Budapest should have won? How many different ways do I need to tell you that I think the Grand Budapest I just want to be very clear that, David, you think that the Grand Budapest Hotel should have won Oscars of 2015. I do. Okay. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Alon.
and this is David, and I finally watched Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance.